NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at netsparker.com or email at contact at netsparker.com. Recorded Future, they help security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. To get started, go to recordedfuture.com forward slash security weekly and sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Data. Every day, you'll receive an email with the top results for trending technical indicators, cyber news, exploited vulnerabilities, suspicious IP addresses, and more. Subscribe to Today and stay ahead of cyber attacks. Endgame's converged endpoint security platform is transforming security programs, their people, processes, and technology with the most powerful endpoint protection and simplest user experience, ensuring analysts of any skill level can stop targeted attacks before information theft. Endgame unifies prevention, detection, and threat hunting to stop known and unknown attacker behaviors at scale with a single agent. For more information, visit endgame.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. I'm excited uh, for this segment. Before we uh, dive into it, we need your help in a survey that we're running for research purposes for an upcoming webcast. How mature is your process automation for your various security capabilities? Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash five stages of automation maturity. Wow, that's a mouthful. Securityweekly.com forward slash five stages of automation maturity to submit your responses to our five station stages even of automation maturity survey. Wow. We're going to be doing a webcast in November and share the results. If you got me the new website, it would be easy. It would be under the survey tab. So we're almost there. We're almost there. We're almost there. We're <laughs> working on it as a team. Uh, actually, quite a few of the team members here are working on that. Uh, I'm excited to introduce our guest, no stranger, to the show, Corey Thune. He's the uh, something and co-founder. He's the co-founder. Is it just co-founder, Corey? Yeah, yeah. That's what that works. Awesome. Corey, welcome back to Paul's Security Weekly. Hey, yeah. Good to see you guys again. Always, uh, always awesome coming on the show. So uh, I, there's uh, like topics and stuff, but basically, Corey and I were chatting and I'm like, like, what you been working on? He's like, well, you know, like we do this thing where it's really cool. We can take this uh, unknown log sources or custom logs and it's like we can parse them and, and do cool stuff with them. I'm like, oh, like you want some custom logs? I get some custom logs. Like we get an app. It's got logs. Like I could send it to you and it'd be really cool. He's like, cool, what's the app? I'm like, it's PeePeeWorks. It's like, what the, <laughs> the heck is that? <laughs> what's PeePeeWorks? I'm like, it's an app we've been coding for quite a, like, four years. I want to say it, it started right as we we're moving into the space around 2015 yeah. uh, hmm. time frame. It's one I've uh, spent the past three months and most of my time uh, coding in. So I'm like, yeah, dude, I'll send you the log. So Corey, you were one of the few to see my PeePeeWorks logs. Basically, yeah. So, so many, so many jokes, um, so, so many jokes I mean, there. there. There's some things you can never unsee. Yeah, right. So, true. Corey, does PP actually work? Right. <laughs> According to the, the logs, works, not all the time. The PP works is there. I, we got the logs. I ingested all of your PP works logs. <laughs> 
Um, we've got him in there, so I'm forever changed as a person. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I think I thought it'd be a, a, a kind of a fun topic to dig into because um, I know Security Weekly is security, and we always talk about security stuff, but um, but security is only one section of a company, right? So it's really common for practitioners out there, uh, whether you, especially Blue Team, where you've got to deal with the logs coming out of some custom applications. And those logs can be sort of, uh, you know, all over the place. So mm-hmm. I thought it'd be, um, yeah, kind of fun to talk about how that works and use some real world um, sort of uh, open the kimono just a tiny bit when it comes to Security Weekly and what goes into uh, making the PP uh, work software happen so that everybody can enjoy the show that that you guys. Uh, it stands for podcast post production works, and it's uh, the software that we use that basically published every single one of our segments and shows. Yeah, so. And and we publish to multiple sources. I, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. people understand what happens when you. There's a lot. You, know, we, you guys, uh, some people think, ah, oh, you guys get to hang around all day, talking about security and doing podcasts. We do, but. We got to get that content out there for you guys yeah, to view, right. right? There's a business to run somewhere. Right. There is a business <laughs> yeah. to run. Uh, that's what I do. He 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 plays with PP works all day. I just write the code he, to he, help he, the business he, run. He, he plays with his PP works. works. But what yeah. you but what we do is when a show gets produced, um, we we do some audio and video editing, and then we bundle everything up, and we have to get it to multiple sources. We have yep. to get it to YouTube so you guys can see it on our YouTube channel. We have to get it to Libsyn to get distributed to the podcast catchers. We have to get it to our website, which is WordPress, so that people can go out and see all that content, right? That, there's a lot of work that happens in there. And so what this software does is allows us to automate more and more mm-hmm. of that publishing functionality uh, for us. So I'm that still scarred because I, I wrote an entire library to interface with the WordPress REST API, and I'm still you're Score. still reeling from that one. I, I did because it's not very well documented at all. But it works. Your, your REST API or the library? WordPress's REST uh, API. Yeah, they do REST have a, a, a... Someone did make a library, and it works for most things except for... Images. Uh, yeah. Now, I want to release this open source because I wrote the image uploader basically from just using Python requests. Nice. Uh, and there was Larry, a, Larry, Larry, you and I know the answer was both. and uh so i in i will release that because it's i don't want anyone else to have to basically go through that headache (laughs) of having to do so eventually your pp will release yes Mm -hmm. yes the wordpress (laughs) module but i mean that's what we do as a business we we record this stuff we've got to get out to the community we got to publish it and the more automation we can do the more fun we can have drinking and smoking cigars all day long so right. just just so why i get up at 5 a.m most days <laughs> and write code and sometimes that automation requires that you record some logs to see what is actually happening and that's what i sent to Corey. yep exactly so so the the business is what matters and pp works helps you to to get that uh, and accomplish the main the main mission and so ideally uh you'd want to be able to include the pp works logs it's going to be hard not to to laugh every time we say that, but I'll try. I named it that uh, to, way just for that reason. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, uh, to include the the you know the PPWorks logs alongside your security information, your your business metrics, uh, so you can uh, be you know monitoring user uh, download rates and and that kind of thing, so you can improve uh, that side of the business as well as as security stuff. You know, you want to know if. Um, if, if you've got any potential problems uh, like SQL injection with your or, or URL uh, injections in your, you know, your WordPress site, that's obviously a concern, too. And all those are logs are sort of related. And so that's kind of what we're, what we're talking about. 
when it comes to any of this. So because my code I, never it never throws a Python exception, never. never. Yeah, that I don't handle. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get into that. And and I gotta say, I'm uh, I'm gonna uh, bring a couple real world examples. And again, um, like I do when I come on the show, these slides are mostly for my organization, not necessarily because uh, PowerPoints. Otherwise, I'll be all over the place with tangents. Um, so, uh, so yeah, in, in like real world custom logs, cause we did this for lots of different organizations. So PP works isn't our first rodeo when it comes to helping people do this. Uh, you're going to find all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, PP works was the first time, however, that I saw ASCII genitals. So that was a unique experience, uh, when it comes to custom logs. But, uh, so I had to add a bullet point to the things was, that you might find. I thought it was appropriate in... <laughs> given the name and stuff. Anyway. Yeah, I should have been prepared. I should have been prepared. So, uh, so you, you know, you another... find that you find uh, there's base sixty four logs. You've got malformed JSON, uh, XML, Ceph that doesn't follow the specs. You've got line breaks in the middle of entries. You've got legacy code that uh, we were kind of talking about this before the show. Um, legacy code that does its own logging that that developers inherit that they don't want to touch because it's scary or or you know it just works so we can't touch it so. We just have to kind of work around those logs sometimes, or we're worried about that. You get stack traces when there's exceptions, uh, binary stuff, double encoding on things. Uh, like we've seen where, where developers will have logs where the the URL encoding will be interpreted, but it doesn't get logged that way. It gets logged and in, 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 in encoded twice. So yep. when you're looking at the logs, you got to be able to sort of pull that out and, and rip them apart and turn them around and and analyze them dynamically so you can you can get the picture about what you're, what it is that you're trying to do. I mean, other and, than the ASCII genitals, none of that is my code. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, you did send it to me, and I definitely pasted some in these slides. So you're wrong. Sweet. Uh, like, here's an do example. Uh, so entries are often uh, not atomic. So basically, we're going to kind of go through a couple of things that are a mess uh, when it comes to logs, like a like a timestamp and then a bunch of uh, hyphens. Like this is the kind of thing that you typically don't. Uh, one in a login usually is left over when a developer starts coding it locally and then you know they're they're creating their log entries to be uh for that them to look at the logs as is a very human readable thing right we like yeah. these delimiters to help us figure so, out so Corey, yeah that's exactly why i did that right because mm -hmm. uh there was all like probably hundreds of logging statements when i got the code right and yep. so Printf. I, <laughs> I can go back and try and fix all that so it makes sense or what i did and it's not the right thing to do i admit that but i'm like okay i need to know like lots of logs happen when i edit stuff and add stuff but when someone publishes something i need to know the begin and end of the publishing mm -hmm. because and that's why i created that pp trail we talked about before which i'm sure we're going to talk about again like i need to know when this certain action happens what are the log entries that encompass that and there's better ways to to do this other than my lines after it dates. looks pretty though you can it read does. it when you're looking at the but that, to Corey's point that's why i did it because when a developer i'm looking at the logs i can go back and say oh we began publishing here okay what happened and where did it fail right but i need to know exactly. that starting point and end point yep yep so when you're in a small scale uh this type of thing is is better because then yeah you're a human you're trying to read it it helps you to move fast but when you start centralizing your logs and you're you know you're putting this yeah. next to your apache or whatever uh you've got your proxy logs like then things start to get jumbled and then it just kind of gets in the way and yep. so um, one of the one of the big things about us at Gravwell, where we disagree with most of the people in the industry, is we have a motto that is ingest everything. Uh, 
uh, and sort it out later. So for so this type of stuff, uh, one of the reasons we made our tool is to help uh, work around some of these things that maybe aren't super changeable necessarily or our legacy or whatever. Right. And we'll uh, we'll dig into that in just a little bit. But like if you're if you have the ability to remove these type of things and create an atomic entry, that's generally uh, better. Corey, uh, and so you know, what do you mean by an atomic entry? Yeah, so an atomic entry would be like, uh, I mean, this is sort of a contrived example because really we're talking about dashes and then a begin publishing. But, um, but an atomic entry would be you don't want you don't want your event spread across multiple lines in your log files with different timestamps. Right. I got you. Yep. And then having to shove that back together or mutilate it back in. Ideally, they should be like a single thing. So a user logged in would not be like the username contained in has initiated login. And then the next entry says uh, a login with this ID has now resumed or finished. And then you got to kind of glue those together to get mm -hmm. the, the final result. Ideally, you would have that all in a single entry um, or multiple entries that include all of the context. Right, right. Uh, which is sort of going into uh, into the, the, uh, the next side as well. Uh, and adding so... context to the entries. To be curmudgeon-y for just a moment, you didn't actually mm -hmm. define atomic. You have find what is not atomic. So for the uh, uninformed layperson that's trying to keep up. Yeah, sure. Atomic uh, so is the opposite of what you were describing? Yes. An, an atomic entry is a, is a single entry that contains the relevant pieces of information necessary to identify or learn from that event. Yeah. Would, again, the better way would to be spit out some JSON when an event happens that uniquely identifies that event along with all the different fields and metadata, correct? Right. And you want, yep, exactly. So if we, if we kind of get into this one, because we see like, here's an example of you spreading the stuff, or you were previous developer. I'm just going to keep picking on you. So this is like a shit, Paul. No, yeah, that, <laughs> that is, that is my code. Definitely where it says the tags are phishing. That is definitely uh -huh. my log entry. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. See, so here's an example of, of we're saying the segment tag being applied is phishing and then the tags are phishing. Uh, we could make this more atomic by, uh, by and more contextual by including perhaps the episode number that this is applying to. Yeah. Right? Like you're creating a data model that you're applying these tags to, but the entry just says the tag is. Right. And that doesn't say, that doesn't say and, shit. And these were really, uh, not that I'm not defending this because you're absolutely right, it could be way better, but uh, I was kind of reverse engineering the WordPress API and trying to apply mm -hmm. tags dynamically. So I was just sticking log statements in there to help me debug like, okay, how am I building the tag structure and then how am I sending it off to WordPress? The big change between XML RPC and WordPress REST API is that in the XML RPC API, you can just say the tag is phishing and that's your ID. In the mm -hmm. REST API, all tags and categories are referenced by an ID number. So, uh, I mean, that completely changes how you implement right. all that stuff. Right. So I was yeah. trying to debug that and that, those are my debug statements. Hey, one I more the, quick Okay, go ahead. One more quick question, if you can go back to your screen. Um, oh, sure. I get the 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 date and the timestamp. What are the three digits after the comma? If you can if you can put your uh, uh, those appear to be milliseconds. Up. At least that's uh, I believe yeah. so. I'd have to look at my uh, my app dot logger or my logger. Most of them are. It, it'll be like nineteen dot seven six eight instead of a comma. So that is a little unusual. But we, I mean, we we've seen timestamp. So is that is that formats. Paul putting the comma in? No, it's uh in. Python, there's a um, module called logging, 
and in logging you define the format and that was pretty there wasn't much thought given to the format in this okay. particular log when i did the other one i read all the documentation about what the format should be and looked at examples and set my okay. own format based on the requirements but like so previous it's a, it's a timestamp. what threw me was the comma gotcha correct yeah and you can he thinks he's that. in europe and he uses the comma instead <laughs> of the period right so that's all that's okay. He he's thinking UK or something. That's okay. I no, I don't think so. They define the log <laughs> format when they define the logging object, and I didn't change it. I just left it, so I don't remember what it was sent to. There's your answer. <laughs> right. So I think it's important at this point to kind of take a step back and say, like, uh, we're we're picking on Paul and these logs because that's what we have, uh, and it's PP work, so it kind of deserves it. Totally but, fine. <laughs> but this is uh, this is real world stuff. So I think a lot of times we, you know, security teams and developers, DevOps stuff can kind of butt heads a little bit uh, because security looks at stuff and says, "Well, why can't you do this?" But developers have all this other, mm-hmm. all these other reasons for why they do stuff. Like you're talking about this library, you're talking about this code, this legacy stuff that you had to get in. You're talking mm-hmm. about fighting WordPress and their stuff not working as documented necessarily, and that is what uh, yeah. like. And when you're dealing with these types of logs, you gotta you gotta try and put yourself in the other person's shoes yeah. a little bit and be able to deal with some of these weird, yeah. uh, crazy yeah. things. Given all those other things, atomic log entries are probably pretty low on a developer's priority list. Yeah, it, a quick example: good documentation for an API like you find from Google or HubSpot shows you the full request and shows you the full response. And then gives you code samples in you know Java and Python and JavaScript, right? WordPress give you give like basically none of that. They were like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. this this yeah. is like a request in curl, and that and that yeah. there's a curl command to run that, and they didn't mm-hmm. show me what the full request should be or the full response should be. Hence, locking statements. Yeah, that's, yeah, this is not cool. at all abnormal in any way. Mm. Uh, we see this at tons of places, so this is a super common thing. So when yeah when you're in your when you're in your knock and you're trying to do uh, analysis for some of this stuff and trying to figure out oh I've got a security thing but let me go to the application logs and see if I can figure out what you know more about it root cause uh, and you're running into logs like this it's not necessarily the developer's fault so uh, so it requires some communication there and I think that's one of the main goals at least for me personally uh, if if people who are listening get nothing else except hey maybe our security team should talk with the devs and let's see if we can get our application logs in a in a spot that uh, helps everybody out then i'll say uh, that this was a win because that's sort of the goal because this this happens tons tons of different places um and uh and here's another entry where we talk about uh an entry in the log that doesn't have a relevant state doesn't really it makes it really tough to uh to find something so uh for, for context about what was being worked on, uh, why this entry is in here, what is it, what is it actually doing? We, we, ideally, we'd like to know, you know what's, what's the source component for this entry, uh, even in the code? Um, you know, which class is generating this log entry or, or something? Uh, what are the attributes that it's applied to? Is this going on, you know, again, on a specific uh, podcast that we're talking about here? Um, you know, what other contextual information can we provide in order to make well, this log. I'm, I'm curious if this is an example of what you were just talking about, where the developer contextually knows exactly what this is, but you know, somebody <laughs> else might be Yeah, looking. I mean... So, that, so, Paul, what is this? It, it's either in the Libsyn API or the WordPress API, both of which suffer from, again, not great documentation. Um, right. So let me back up a second. When you go to Google and you work with one of their APIs, for the most part... 
they tell you like what the request and response should look like. They give you like Google gives you like a little tester to say mm-hmm. like you can plug your stuff in here and and click submit and would like execute this API call. Mm-hmm. They also give you a list of the response codes. Mm-hmm. So they say there'll be this field and when this field is populated it means that in our case right like there's a duplicate file that was detected or you've reached your quota so you can then code to those certain things libsyn and wordpress don't have that level of documentation so you end up with debug statements like what and that's an incorrect debug statement it's supposed to print out what the request was but the type is wrong so it doesn't print out the full uh request yet another exception yeah and that well that could be (laughs) it could be an exception absolutely and another log entry um, no, exactly. Well, but that's the yeah, that's the point is you right. don't you don't know. That's why like uh, scripting is important. Dynamic analysis is super important. Mm-hmm. But this but those types of logs like aren't necessarily structured. So right. you're not going to the, the whole point is you it's really tough to get like a sim or any sort of out of the box that can help you uh, actually sort through and figure out what's actually happening. You know, mm-hmm. if you, if you want to dig through some of these custom logs, you got to say now what are you you're kind of stuck with grep uh, or or, you know, a couple other tools uh, that are out there. And that's I yeah, mean, and depending on the, the API and depending on the specific like function or method in that API, it might be doing a raw Python requests or it might be calling uh, a library mm-hmm. that you install that's doing those Python requests but front-ending that with an easier-to-use API. Uh, and y- your mileage could vary. You may have that library, but it doesn't support one piece of functionality, so your other function has to call Python request directly and basically implement the API in a raw request, or it's calling, so you end up with debug statements that are trying to print out, what was my request? What was my response? So <laughs> when you get an error, you can kind of compare them and go, how do I write my code? Because there's not much documentation, and that's why. Yep, and uh, and and... So if you're going to do something atomic, keeping the request and the response together isn't necessarily a bad thing either. So you have the, the, the context in there. But um, uh, I think we talked about this. So this is where we get into the PP trail yeah. uh, about what you were talking about. Because, yeah, formatting your, your logs in, in JSON or it's like great. a key value yeah. uh, pair is a great way to help, um, help do that. And that, that's uh, basically required if you're going to use anything that's, uh, that's more of you know, your SIM-style sim log analytics. Uh, that's going to try and parse that stuff. You're going right. to have to put it in this type you know, of format, To your but. point, Corey, about developers that end up in situations, right? I, I, I'm not going to go to my CEO, Mr. Matt Alderman, and go, hey, I need a week to rewrite all the logging so it spits out <laughs> JSON. Matt's going to be like, uh, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> we need to automatically send out tweets on stuff that we publish. And we also, from a security perspective, if there was like a fictitious security person, they'd be saying, you need a secrets manager, right? So you've got... What really the last three months have taught me is you've got these competing uh, priorities. But Corey, you're mm-hmm. absolute, to your point, you're absolutely correct. JSON, as I've learned, and this is another testament to the uh, situation you need to be aware of that developers get in, is sometimes you're learning as you go, right? Sometimes you're inheriting code or even writing from scratch, and you're, you discover, you talk to people. Uh, Tyler was awesome to talk to at Black Hat and other Python uh, developer, I ask Joff questions every time he's on the show, mm-hmm. and you learn as you go, and you're like, oh, the right way to do it is to, as Corey said, for logging. You notice Joff hasn't been on the air lately. Yeah, because he knew we were going to be talking about my in the incredible... He's, he's waiting until you publish the new website. That's right. Oh, so yeah. JSON is a much better format, because uh, two advantages I noticed right away. One, it can be parsed back in the interface awesome, like very easily. 
Second, there's a Python module that converts JSON to HTML. So when I had to do the notification, I make one call to an external library that takes my JSON log entry, converts it to HTML, and sends the email. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is how we should have done all of logging. Wait, but wait. it's a week's worth of time to convert all the logging into JSON. Wait, so. wait, you do HTML formatted emails? Yes. What kind of barbarian this. are <laughs> are you? <laughs> you know? Wow. In certain Somebody has to be able to click on the link. Otherwise, I cannot serve up our malware. Oh, uh, sorry. No. Well, my whole thing is I can write the code to parse JSON into text and format it, or I can just make one call to this library and spit out HTML. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm just buzzing your HTML versus that, text email. Right. But we're also trying to get our listeners and our guests um, information of here's your YouTube yep. post, mm -hmm. HTML link. Sure. Uh, here's the tweet. Here's the LinkedIn. Here's the whatever. And that requires us to do it in HTML. Yeah. I, so anyway, I, I totally get the use case. Yeah. Corey, I JSON totally for the win, right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so JSON's great, but like you said, sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes that you know you just don't have the time to go back and do stuff. So security still has to do their job, no matter what the logs end up looking like. It's true. Um, and also, uh, dumps happen. Uh, sometimes you get dumps in your PP works. And this is an example. Uh, there's yep. there's uh, exceptions that show up uh, from from Python, and so you need to be able to handle those too. Especially uh, and and like security uh, events. Um, I mean, the reason the the quintessential reason that security is a problem is because it doesn't align exactly with what the developer expected, and right. so it doesn't fit into the JSON paradigm always. And so then you, you might have a dump either uh, an exception or, or crazy log formats or something. And those are often the ones that you care the most about. So uh, so going in and being able to search through that is is what's, is what's uh, pretty key for, for being able to dig stuff. So just for funsies, I took and, and ingested the PPWorks logs and threw it in my local uh, Docker. I just set up a quick Docker container uh, for, for Grabwell. Um, which, uh, if uh, if this is something that you wanted to do with your own stuff, uh, we have Grabwell Community Edition, totally free, up to two gigs a day, runs in Docker. It's an app to install Grabwell, and you're already done. And then you can start uh, throwing logs in. Super easy to get up and running, and you could you could nice. you know do this kind of thing with your own stuff uh, if that's something you're playing with. But so wait, Corey, um, I just want to go back. I, the the point you made uh, just a, a moment ago was very important. In specifically in this example with Python, when it throws an exception. It typically, the most one of the more common causes is the application perhaps experienced a condition or data that it was not expecting. And when you process that in Python, Python basically is throwing an error, going, my most common error, cannot concat or cannot compare store to none type, right? <laughs> like that's pretty common uh, Python error, especially if you're not used to the... Uh, loosely typed, like, like you don't have to define your variables, in other words, in Python. Uh, and so that can be problematic. Um, but that can be indicative of a user did something different, a user supplied something different, or an attacker caused some condition or provided me with some data or the app some data that I was not expecting. So to me, exceptions are really useful for both improving the quality and resiliency of your code in the context of usability, 
uh, resiliency and like not crashing or stopping execution and security as well because mm -hmm. security really relates to those conditions. So Corey, you're, you're spot on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, and and y y you know you look at the entries that that I've got in here for your stuff and I actually yeah so I created like a little dashboard that just shows um, here's sort of the I, I think this is probably the makings of the PP trail. Yep. Uh, events that you're talking about. Um, you have some malformed JSON in here, so I do. Just so you know, yeah, I I had to construct that JSON based off strings, list of strings, and lists that contained dictionaries of JSON. And that I'm not, mm -hmm. I wasn't very good at parsing all of that. That yeah, was exactly. That well, was my first pass. Stuff, right? but, that was but my first this pass. This is the kind of thing, <laughs> like you know, we want to set up a dashboard here that shows. Uh, everybody, you know, when your episodes get published, you want confirmation that they went out to each of the different hosts correct? Uh, and where they went out and what the end result was. And so if this was actually not malformed JSON, then we could parse out the individual pieces and put that in a nice chart. But since yeah. uh, right now it kind of doesn't do that, then my, my... Uh, another example of, of you know, th things don't always match up with expectations. But it's important to be able to work through that as you go, which is cool. Well, Corey, um, I, and I want to run this by you. So... Um... Uh, that was my first pass at trying to normalize and JSONify the logging, right? And mm -hmm. I created basically uh, three different kind of fields in my messages. First was the label of what function it was executing. So was I trying to publish to YouTube? Was I trying to publish to Libsyn? Was I trying to publish to WordPress, right? So it says this is where I was publishing. And then... Mm -hmm. Uh, in the the dictionary, it starts off as a dictionary, right? Uh, there's a status and an error. And status could be like success. Like I did this, it was successful. Here's mm -hmm. the link to your WordPress post. That's the best type of status, right? But status can also be like I encountered this. It wasn't necessarily an error. Like basically the file already existed or... You know, like I retried uh, once and it failed, and then I retried another time and it was success, so I keep that in the status field. Uh, mm -hmm. Errors are solely reserved for Python exceptions. Like I was doing this, and I got a Python exception for whatever for whatever reason. So those are errors. So I was trying to basically normalize all of those activities so, into a dictionary that I converted so, JSON. And so what I'm hearing here is sometimes during an encounter, your PP has a dict. <laughs> And something about a Python. Yes. Okay. Yes. And occasionally it spooges and <laughs> throws an exception. And throws an exception. <laughs> yep. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, actually. So if I search for exception, uh, yeah, it looks like here your PP works just spooged everywhere. And we get this giant entry about your <laughs> yes. Python exception, right? And so giant entry security, is uh, This is the kind of thing that I care about because exactly like you said. So so this is in an internal log. I, I only have these. You know, I don't have your network traffic information or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But if this was, a you know, a, an Internet-facing application, you're absolutely certain that I, as a blue teamer, would definitely want to correlate this with my NetFlow, uh, firewall rules, right. um, and, you know, IDS, IPS stuff to try and figure out what caused this exception. Is this uh, attacker oriented? Is this just a bug in the code? Um, maybe bring in developers as part of that investigation. But that's all part of the threat hunting. And exceptions are definitely an important tip that you might use when you're generating hypothesis for, for doing that threat hunting and looking through stuff. So, so it's really uh, important uh, that you're not dropping. And only the tip. Sometimes. I'm glad you brought that up because I've been sitting here wondering because my orientation is much more towards system logs and event logs, security logs. And I'm sitting here wondering and wanted to ask, 
what exactly is generating these particular types of logs? Uh, and, and if I'm understanding correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, these log, these particular logs that you have been reviewing this episode are things that Paul kind of wrote on the fly to generate logs so he could figure out mm-hmm. what the code is doing. Is that is that? Uh, these more, particular ones, but less? as an example, um, uh, we have uh, another customer, and they have uh, they have internal application logs that measures uh, some key performance metrics about their infrastructure, uh, how how many customers they're able to service at a time, what the um, what the load on some of the servers are, but sure. but you can't just use straight up CPU for some of that stuff because they're in different areas. So. They're they're wanting to monitor uh, that aspect and and how they're serving customers. I'm trying. Sorry for being a little vague. I don't want to. Um, well, that's I okay. I, mean, but I, I guess. But uh, there's a second category. I guess that is what you're describing. That I'm that I'm also that I see a lot of, it, or it's fairly common, uh, which I would just call performance or yeah. you know performance metrics or or network. Mm-hmm network health type of checks but but these specific logs are logs that paul had been writing to try to get the website to work essentially yeah and and so what you what to to corey's point right is when you look at log sources you're looking at performance metrics around how is your infrastructure performing cpu memory disk maybe network traffic etc etc you're also collecting logs about how the application is performing when it throws exceptions and then you want to correlate a lot of that information because when an exception gets thrown in an application, maybe it's because my disk is full or it's because somebody uh, is throwing malformed packets or an attack at the application and is throwing an exception, right? So to Corey's point is in order to be able to correlate those activities, if you're collecting the logs in a standard format, now I can start to correlate to say, oh, that was a performance issue because I've got all these performance logs over here on this side that say, look, I'm out of disk space. I tried to do something. I threw an exception. That is okay. That's an operational function, right, issue versus a security issue where somebody's actually trying to come into your application, do something malicious, throw in an exception, and now I can go trace back on the other side to say, okay, what initiated that potential Mm -hmm. attack? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, as a concrete example, we had we have a customer who uh, was monitoring usage of their API, and a couple exceptions had happened around the time when uh, an adversary, I guess we'll say an adversary, it was actually a customer of theirs, but customers can be adversarial, so yep. you got to worry about that, um, was working out how to get around rate limits to the API so that they could basically uh, essentially uh, steal services at a higher tier than what they were paying for. Uh, because they were, they had found a way around um, the rate limits to some of that stuff, and so exceptions were the way in to figure out that that was even happening in the first place. And like I I, I get that. I mean, first off, that is un- unethical in that particular situation that you described. I would deem that as unethical. However, APIs do have quotas, and as a developer now, like quotas are super freaking frustrating, <laughs> man. Mm-hmm. Like what the f. He so codes like around them. And that's exactly the, the scenario <laughs> we do. Like, I code it. Not because, like, if I could pay money to have a million points in YouTube's quota, like, where, where do I write? Uh, within reason, if it's yeah. in the budget. Right. Matt's where here. do I write the check? But, well, where do I write the check, right? Like, if it's $30 a month or whatever, and that buys me a million points, friggin' great. That saves us so many cycles in development mm-hmm. worth $30, $50 a month, right, to pay for that. You hear this, YouTube? There's a market. 
there's a market for that. I would has been for a while. I would absolutely pay for that because it's again super frustrating, especially when speaking about quotas, right? When you put your code into a CI/CD pipeline and you want to do automated testing, I you fill up quotas really fast. Like, I, okay, go wipe the database clean, start from scratch, and now go publish every show to every destination three times in the three different ways that right. you know we can publish all the I different scenarios. I need an scenarios. update, a delete, a replace, or whatever. And every you action, a, yeah. every act in YouTube's and all their APIs work similarly. Every action uh, or every request, right, that you make of the API accumulates points. So, for example, in YouTube, uploading a video is sixteen hundred points. Deleting a video is 50 points. Updating the tags and description is some other points. They actually have a points calculator, you know, on their website. And so you, you can rack up points. So like in our case, default, you get 10,000 points in YouTube's API. Well, that's only like, like maybe like eight or nine videos a day. And if I'm multiple releases a day and my test cycle <laughs> is... Ten, I got to publish 10 times to go through a full test cycle. Mm. I can't even go through one test cycle in a day. Super annoying. Sorry, I was on my soapbox there for a minute. I'm off now. Wow. <laughs> wow. So you... So oh, Paul, wait, Corey, Paul, I think you're muted. You, Paul, your PP releases seven or eight times a day? <laughs> it does. Wow. It's a lot of releases. <laughs> it really, really does work. A lot of logs. He, he's not to Instagram yet at doing it every seven minutes, but... Wow, not that yet. would that that That's I mean that stamina, dude. I'm, is I'll that really saying, is that yeah. what they've documented? Seven minutes. Every seven minutes, they do a release. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Team News integration, yeah. Clearly, clear, for that. Yeah, clearly they're not going to EdgeCon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nope. Sorry, Corey, you were saying something earlier? Uh, yeah, no, I was just going to say that, that like, that's an important uh, that's an important piece. And so I just got a couple uh, PP Works tips for for you or anybody who's doing such things. Um uh, when, when you're when you're doing your logging, you want to try and define goals where you can. And so, like you said, it sounds like you're sort of on track with the with the PP trail. You want to know uh, how the publishing goes, what the results of that was, if you ran into any errors, etc. And so that might be your main goal of how you're going to develop and, and create the log format for what you're doing. Um, so this is unique to every organization. And so this is important to have communication between your DevOps team and your security team to make sure that both teams are benefiting from the logs on this. Uh, and they can agree on stuff. Uh, but you don't always know what you don't know uh, when it comes to logs. So uh, be flexible is the name of the game. Use flexible tools uh, that aren't super rigid and uh, keeping you to specific stuff. Um, you want to add, add context to your entries so that uh, when you're looking at a log, you can uh, get a better idea about what causes it or, or yeah, and uh, what's around it. Corey, I, it's another uh, question I have for you because what mm -hmm. I, I noticed this exact thing just from experience, right, of like working with the code. I'm like, I'm reading that log entry and I'm like, wait, where in the code did that happen? And <laughs> was it an error or was it like something that was normal? So I started my own formatting and then... The more I researched and read, I realized there's better ways to do this. Which but is why you have malformed JSON and <laughs> incompatible <laughs> Seth. Exactly. <laughs> but so I started my own format of uh, uh, every log entry will begin with status. And that's just like mm -hmm. a, a message that like nothing's bad happened. Just, you know, say what happened. Right. I've got error, which is I encountered some error somewhere. And then I've got debug, which is like I'm trying to make stuff work. So I'm going to print out like a lot more than I normally do. 
Ideally, mm-hmm. that's controlled with your logging object and other flags that, like, I only want to print debug in development, not in staging or production. Maybe I do want to do it in staging, but definitely not in production. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I started logging uh, which module and method and or function was writing that log. So I knew that, you know, pub tweet is the method in segments, right, that publishes the tweet. So when it logs, it's status pub tweet. But there's ways to, in different languages, I believe, to automatically document this stuff in your logs and smarter ways to do that other than the developer remembering, like, I got to manually type in status and the method name. Oh, that's, yeah. There, I mean, there kind of are, and there's standards you can follow, but that uh, that's pretty rare. Uh, most of the time, it's exactly like you described, where it's yeah. so, it comes gotcha. up more organically, mm. or like the JSON structure of a log will will be created organically. But um, creating like the log level, like you said, status debug error, um, adding in keywords for the components is another key thing. So yep. so you know where in the code to look if you're trying to uh, to figure something out. Um, but additional stuff like like in this example where you're saying starting conversion from HD to MP3. Uh, you know, what's the file name? Which episode is it? What are the tags associated with it? Which infrastructure is performing this activity? How big is the file? Um, yep. Sort of all these things can help uh, if you run into errors to to figure out what's Complete, going on. And um, you can probably, a smarter way to do that would be to define attributes in your classes that you would mm-hmm. basically read from and print every time you logged, right? Yeah, yeah. That would ease the, yeah, okay. I can't believe it. I got your, can't believe know, it spent three bar. months before I figured <laughs> out. Damn it. Damn. Hey, Jeff <laughs> wants to put, to put his hand on your PPP. <laughs> I, I have a, a couple questions. Um, and again, because I'm an old timer. Back when I used to code, occasionally uh, the code that I wrote in required compiling. And my first question is, is this just how it works these days when you don't compile code anymore? You have to set up some sort of debugging routine and you just kind of limp along? Well, Corey, if I could just take the first pass at this one. So uh, Python being interpreted and not strongly typed. Did I say that right, Corey? Not strongly typed. In other words, I don't have to define my variables before I use them. Right, right. I don't benefit. yeah. Yeah, I don't benefit, Jeff, from those compile time errors. In other words... Mm-hmm. If I reference a variable before assignment, in Python, I see that at runtime, in C or Java, go. I believe, or Go, right, I would get an error at compile right. time, and right. my code wouldn't wouldn't compile, and I'd go as a developer and fix that. Which is which was not necessarily less painful than what you're describing, but at right. least you sort of you had a starting point. You, you, yes. It would crap out somewhere, and you're like, okay, something went wrong here, or... Right. Yeah, now, the second, the, the second right part of, uh, of the answer to that question, Jeff, for me and other people who are way better at this than I, please weigh in. Um, but what I've done is in my IDE, I flipped some of my linting <clears throat> to be like warnings or like weak warnings into <laughs> true errors. So yep. if I, the like a variable could be referenced before assignment in my IDE, that's an error. And that shows up as like red, and I can filter for that when I do the uh, inspection of my code. Like those are all errors, and I think that's the transition when you're, you know, as a pen tester, those can attest to. You write a quick Python script, mm-hmm. like not having that strongly typed thing is an advantage. I can write code faster. I don't mm-hmm. have to do as much debugging, yep. <coughs> and that's great. When I'm in, you know, five thousand plus lines of code, multiple developers, and a web application that's taking input from multiple users and executing multiple functions. That's a disadvantage of Python, mm-hmm. in my opinion, and I think that the 
a good way to solve that is to go into your IDE, your linting tool, and be like, no, you, you can't do that. Like, you got to define your variables because someone else could be writing a completely different, you know, piece of code and, and referencing things, and users could be entering things wrong or right or anywhere in between, and you have to uh, account for that. Yeah, well, that's kind of Did I get that, that kind of sort of right? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, it's almost more important when you're when you're not talking about the dynamic languages because then you're talking about like uh, I mean that's the classic buffer overflow is is your core dumping because you're accessing memory that you don't have access to so your right. pre-compiled thing still has those problems you still have to do this kind of anomaly uh, log detection and and grabbing all that stuff right um, but, but yeah it just happens at a different was... time so. Paul was kind of touching on what was going to be my second question, which is probably a little bit more philosophical. Is like, is this better than the old way? Because hmm. it it sounds in some ways it's more painful. Yeah. And a third question, I guess I would ask in terms of Python, just because you don't have to define a variable, does that mean you shouldn't? Uh, so I I like to define my variables more often than not, especially when you have code that's running based on external user input, right? So a lot of times, again, as a pen tester, you write a script like, yeah, you're the only user. And if it throws an exception and like crashes, you're like, oh, I got to give it the, the right data and that's cool. But like when you're writing stuff that other people are using, it's a different story. I do like to define those. Also, Python has evolved to the versions. One of the big projects that we have to make time for is converting from 2.7 to 3. Yeah. And 3.5 introduced, at least in functions, they introduced the ability to say that function parameters, uh, you can define the type when you're passing it to the function. Now, it's not perfect, but there's kind of, Python's kind of catching on to, we need to be, at least give the user some ability to make it a little more strongly typed. Uh, and that's, that's not till 3.5. I'd love to do that on my functions today. However, again, it's a couple of weeks, probably more than a week-long project that I have to go to Matt and say, I already had to wait three months, damn it. <laughs> that's right, to get publishing working. Now I'm like, exactly. it's at least two but to three more weeks, solid programming time myself and someone else to take this from 2.7 to 3 in regression test and convert all the to, code. To, to Jeff, to your point is... There are advantages and disadvantages yeah. for interpreted languages and compiled languages. And everybody is going to make that choice, right? Python, mm -hmm. PHP, interpreted languages are used a lot because they're easy to develop against. But they create all these mm -hmm. kind of cons when it comes to debugging and, and other things. Uh, compiled code gives you some structure. But then it's all through the compilation side. There are Sometimes there are harder languages to learn. You've seen evolutions with Go, for example, that I think a lot of people are starting to adopt to. Yep, right. But people have picked languages that they're running on. And it's not easy to take a PHP app and convert it, or a Python app and convert it to a Go or a C mm -hmm. or a whatever, right? So once you've, <laughs> you've kind of laid that foundation, you just have to understand how right to there. work through it. Now, I, I would say that Python gives you the facility with exception handling that I think is pretty amazing in Python above and beyond some of the other languages. Exception handling in Python is really powerful. And if you you have to spend the time to implement it properly, but I think if you do, it can help you overcome some of those uh, you know, issues where like you don't have to define variables and things like that. If you use exception handling properly, um, it can be very effective in handling based uh, what it says, right? Handling those mm -hmm. exceptions. But learning how to do that for me 
and, and Corey and others, I don't know if you've done other languages and Python and, and, and gone through different languages. Exception handling in Python for me was really different than any other language I had ever done anyway. Yeah, well, they're, they're all interesting. We haven't even talked about the most memeable language of all, uh, JavaScript. Right? I'm not getting any of that. Which, I, uh, I try and stay away, to be honest. I, hey, man. Uh, I, uh, I, uh, I'm weird in the security community. JavaScript is actually my favorite, my favorite language. I love it. I like the functional and the prototypal inheritance stuff. It's all really cool. But yeah, the, the duct typing is something that, that bites people all the time. And so, so, no, Java, no, so hold on. JavaScript's the same way as Python. Like you don't have to define a variable before you. Right, right. TypeScript yeah. is a thing on top of that. So now most frameworks are using TypeScript for that exact same reason. Like Python 3.5, like you define what the type is. So yeah. when you call a function, but now, type doesn't match. Corey, no, 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 in Corey, JavaScript, I, do you have exceptions? What does your exception handling look like? Because I haven't yeah, same, done that much. Same. Yeah, try catch blocks. Okay, gotcha. Uh, and uh, Corey, now my question will be JavaScript client side or server side? Client All side. All JavaScript everywhere. You know, <laughs> works? I'll just I'll put JavaScript right in there. Well, we used awesome. to do a lot of JavaScript on the client side to render the pages and sure. all that other stuff. And and so we, why not push it to the client? It takes a load off the server right, well, side, well, right? Now, so, now Node.js is a thing, so like, it is, right? Uh, well, and I, I will say, uh, Corey, I think your application Gravwell is um, <coughs> Angular, uh, right? Yep. Yeah. So all our client is, um, yeah, the GUI that I was showing is all Angular, which is uh, TypeScript on JavaScript, and then the backend is Go. Right. Uh, for, for our text. Yeah, so yeah. for us, um, uh, Jack, our uh, developer, one of our developers, is um, implementing a React interface, which is, I mean, essentially you need the same components, yep. right? It's all written in JavaScript kind of thing. So yep. I will transition to that because I'm going to have to know how to, you know, learn it and Better than it. jQuery. It is way better than jQuery. I'm doing that today. Mm. And like, all right, I feel like we're talking about religion now. <laughs> I don't know uh, about <laughs> No. Like jQuery, like, gets the job done. And very basic, and I don't try and force it to do, like, it's basic. I tell the guys, I'm like, this is what you get now. Anything beyond this, we gotta, you got to wait for the React interface because yep, I'm, I'm not going through the pain of making this any, any better or more React advanced. React is awesome, i got to say. Yeah. It, it is really cool. It's a really awesome programming paradigm. I like it a lot. Um, but Continue, Corey. We yes. should probably wrap it up. So here's my, here's my parting words, if I could say is you want to make sure you keep your anomalies and, and analyze them. Security teams work with your dev teams. Keep your crash dumps, your error messages. They're often unstructured, often weird. Your PP works is going to splooge all over the logs. And uh, that's a, a, an important thing to be able to deal with. And so you want to get those logs in a place where you can cross-reference them mm -hmm. with your other logging information to uh, to really get the full context about what it was it that caused this issue how do we how do we go forward is this some security thing that we need to investigate and beyond there so um, so so Corey can I can I sum this up look keep your logs at yeah. atomic right use mm -hmm. JSON yep because then I if, if I have a atomic JSON based logs then the ability to correlate to other events in your sim, um, with other log events is probably a little easier, right? Mm -hmm. Right. If you have a field that says source IP was this, then yeah, you can coordinate it with your NetFlow or, or whatever. It makes it easier. But you know, that's a fantastic thing, security uh, people, if you're listening, right, to have that conversation with your developers mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. wish I had understood it to this level as we discussed today. As we yeah. keep, your, you, keep your logs atomic, give it to them in JSON, give them right. enough context. 
And then that'll make it easier for them to correlate with all the other logs they're collecting to actually look for whether it's an operational issue, a security issue, whatever. But I think it's, a, it's an architecture thing, and I take full responsibility. I was the architect of this software from day one. I set forth the requirements. That's it. I'm taking over the architecture the role. The functionality, <laughs> right? But I didn't put forth any requirements on what on what was logged. And that, what I'm hearing now, is that's, that's super important, right? You need to, as the architect or security person, whether you're talking to the architect or the developers or both, is set forth those parameters to say, look, when you log something, you have to fit into this other entire ecosystem to allow us to correlate events. And that's the, one of the pieces that was the missing in right, the, missing. the architecture. Right. Yep. So that's the ideal. But the reality is, yeah, things, the reality is we're all people and uh, and, and stuff happens. So we, we write uh, stuff to logs to debug you really stuff. Yeah. got to be able to stick and move with the logs. You got to be able to dynamically uh, analyze them, grepping and, and extracting values and throwing them on charts. And, and kind of like I did with the, with the dashboard of, of your guys' stuff, like you want to be able to to dig through and set up uh, and and get context even if the logs suck because the reality is they're going to suck. Uh, some of them will right. at some point. Um, and yeah, if if you can if you can work with the DevOps team to help improve them, then that's an awesome goal. But like you said, Paul, like that's a tough thing to get budget and resources for right. because it doesn't necessarily drive the needle in a way that helps the C-suite right. uh, to really see that. That's a that's a historically difficult thing to convince them of. Right, because we want to move function and features out on a timely basis to, mm -hmm. to hit our uh, audience, um, in our case, but for a consumer or whatever the business model is, right? We're on the business side, we're thinking about get that functionality out, get that capability out, get it out there, start using it. We don't think about the logs. We don't think about the security and operational impacts of how those logs mm -hmm. are coming out and, and how we have to correlate them in with all the other stuff that's being collected. Um, but it's a good conversation to have. And I've been a big proponent of security talking to dev teams for a long time. As we see this transformation happen, just having the conversation will help us start to get better data for the security guys to do their job, but also keep the developers doing their job, which is mm -hmm. getting feature functionality out mm -hmm. to the customer base. Yep, exactly. And I would say as one last thing, like uh, you can lean on your your vendors and third-party security assessment uh, people as well a little bit to help you with the C-suite uh, side of it. So if you, if you really do think, um, you know, you need a little help or you want to work on this justification that says, you know, if we could just take, you know, three days and rework this logging setup, then we would have a much better idea about the usage of our system and be much, you know, we're going to save time responding to incidents mm -hmm. as an example. And that's putting it in the language that yeah, seems like we that. can understand that usually, you know, when you're in the trenches, you don't necessarily think about stuff like that. Right. And so but uh, that also there, important too. there's an operational benefit to doing this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of logs. I, right? I mean, look, logs of impact is security and operations almost equally. Operations have to know how the infrastructure is performing to get better performing uh, better, systems better out there. Better user experience. When better I did user that, experience. The, the PP trail that we alluded to is uh, JSON, a poorly formatted JSON uh, log at this point, but it's the beginnings of, now mm -hmm. I format that in an HTML email to the people who are publishing. Right. And Mark's like, oh, that's so great. Like I get an email, it tells me exactly what happened in an email, and I can go back and fix something and yep. or know that, like, mm -hmm. hey, it published without errors. And when there's an error, I know what the error was. That was a huge problem in our application from a user perspective. We didn't perspective. know where it was. Yeah, we didn't know what and was happening. from a security perspective, yep. if I don't know what the error condition was, 
that's bad because attackers can slip through and do stuff without you noticing. It's also bad from a troubleshooting perspective because now your users and your developers and your ops team are spending more time trying to debug, like, what was the problem? Why didn't it publish? Why did it crash? Why didn't it deploy? Well, right. I don't know because the, the logging is, like, all over the place. <laughs> right. so, yep. Or non-existent. Yep. yep. That's a great point. So, uh, Corey, just uh, to kind of summarize, like, were you able to make sense of the logs using GraphWell, or, or do we need to implement some of the recommendations to make that a reality, or did you get some kind of value? Do, do we get some value implementing GraphWell even if the logs are somewhat poorly? Oh yeah, formatted? no, I, I think uh, even the logs as is. I, that, that's one of the nice parts about our our tool to pat ourselves on the back. The team uh, did a good job for how. I mean, that was our goal when we wrote line zero of the code was we right. wanted to be able to deal with logs like this because that's the reality of the situation. So, yeah. um, in that brief dashboard that I pulled up, I built that in 20 minutes or so awesome. of digging through and saying like, okay, uh, we can identify when publishing happens. We can identify when errors happen. And so if I was uh, for realsy setting this up in your guys' setup, uh, I would want to probably put some automation around that with some alerting or emails and then you know correlating that with uh, some of your other data that you're getting out of uh, out of your metrics for uh, for your users and download and view counts and stuff to, to create the holistic picture of of what it looks like from episode creation to publication. And I don't know, there's just a lots of like, those are the typical things that we work with for customers who are looking to get insights out of, out of their uh, custom logs on top of um, you know, more standard stuff. Awesome. Very good, Corey. Thank you very much for appearing on Paul's Security Weekly oh, yet absolutely. again. Thanks for having me. Uh, good it, to see everybody. Securityweekly.com forward slash Gravwell, right? Or Gravwell.io. Go get the free, yeah. uh, the free trial. And uh, again, Corey, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show tonight. And said that just for you, Larry. Uh, and coming up next, Chris had Nagy. Stay tuned for an awesome uh, interview with Chris.